Hello, and welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, how's it going? It's going really well. It's been a interesting week or so, lots going on, but was able to make some time to read some interesting comics, get a chance to visit with you on. So I'm going to be intrigued to see how this goes. We got a bunch of very different books to talk about this week. We do a, bu- a bunch of stuff, older stuff, and then some very, very recent stuff. So, And all uh, of it pertaining to Ant-Man and the Wasp, the uh, the sequel to the Ant-Man movie that uh, that we're going to be watching next week and taking a look at. Yes, very much looking forward to jumping in and talking about the stack, but let's dive in and talk about some comic book news first and there is there was an interesting uh thread on x slash twitter uh from don slot that ended up being put into an article on comicbook.com saying spider-man writer don slot addresses fan frustration and so he went on to uh x and was trying to uh make people feel better about Spider-Man, I guess. Some people are not real happy with with the character recently. And he's one of the things he said, or he starts the thread by saying, it's impossible to ruin or destroy a long-standing legacy character. If an iconic character has been around for 50 plus years, they're indestructible. Whatever current aspect storyline displeases you as a fan can be hand-waved away down the road. The character you love will be fine. He goes on to say, but what if I don't want to wait that long? If a legacy character has been around for 50 plus years, chances are good. There are hundreds, if not thousands of stories about them in various media you haven't read, seen, or experienced yet. More than enough to tide you over. So there, there's, it, it's really interesting, the whole thread. And um, it's, it, I, I don't know what's going on in the current state of Spider-Man or what has fans so frustrated, but I thought it was interesting. He talks about the fact that, you know, you have to take risks as a storyteller. And, and uh, you know, he said he says for a character to stay vital, fresh, especially one that's been around 50 plus years, storytellers have to take risks and try things they haven't been done with the character before and whenever that happens whatever ways those stories deviate from the norm will inevitably upset a number of hardcore fans conversely they could also excite other parts of the base and can catch the attention of new fans these deviations are necessary time to time i would bet it's got a lot to do with the whole ms marvel thing and the death of Ms. Marvel yeah. and that. I, I, and yeah, I suppose that makes sense. That they have that sort of, you know, what did Peter do uh, storyline leading up to it. Don't want to spoil a lot of stuff there. But yeah, there's there's people who are angry about that. I find it interesting how he doesn't really try to make those folks feel better. He's no, more he like... Doesn't. 
because we don't want you around and you're obviously angry. Go back and read some stuff from the 90s or the early 2000s or the 70s or whenever you were happy and leave us alone, right? I don't know it's a particularly adult way to deal with criticism, to be quite frank. Sure. But I also think it's getting frustrating for a lot of the folks trying to deal with these characters because they're in a tough spot. You know, how do you make a story about Spider-Man that's actually interesting when you have 60 or 70 years of stories, right? Yeah, you, you've you got a very small box in which to work in because it's, because a lot of stuff has, yeah. been, has been done with the character. And that's one of the reasons why, to be quite frank, I, I mean, I love these characters, but I mostly read independence and I read stuff that has fresh characters that don't have 60 years of history. That was one of the nice things about somebody like Moon Knight, who we've read a lot, is, you know, in, what, three or four months, we read every Moon Knight story pretty much, right? Because he hasn't been used as much. If you wanted to read every Spider-Man story, oh goodness. I can't tell you how long that would take. But it would be, take a, it would be a lot. Because there yeah. were a lot of times in the 80s and 90s where he had three, four, or more books going concurrently every month. Right. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. But I know there's a lot of frustration on both sides, both from the creators and from the fans. And it's probably not all healthy. But the simple fact, though, is he's not wrong. That you do have to keep taking chances. You've got to try things. You've got to shake up the character once in a while and you've got to keep it relevant to the current the current age with at least the assumption that there are people who aren't 50 years old reading your comic books occasionally right sure no that makes sense and i mean i guess to me the thing that i thought when i was was reading through this thread was I think I want my storytellers taking chances. I, I won't necessarily always agree with the directions they decide to go, but I, I do think I want to see something different from time to time, like not the same old, same old. And, and I was thinking about Moon Knight, actually, and some of the things that we saw and some of the things that I liked the most were things that didn't necessarily, weren't, weren't the typical Moon Knight story. Right. It was the stuff that was a little bit different, had a little different edge to it, had a little different viewpoint to it, different things like that, that that I think really can give you a different uh, light of that you're looking at this character as a whole with. Yep. Now, that said, both you and I probably feel a little bit uncomfortable about what's going on in Moon Knight right now. You know, here's a character we <laughs> yep. love that's evidently dying and coming back as a different character. And so we're going to be straining against this fan yep. frustration over the next few yep. months. That's yep. the way it goes. I will say that one thing that Slot said that I don't know I actually agree with is that a 50-plus-year-old character is indestructible because there are things you can do, right? You can, you can new coke it up to the point where <laughs> people yeah. simply say, no, I'm done. Right. Uh -huh. And I think that, you know, you look at somebody like, I guess, you know, Hank Pym, for instance, was a character who he'd been around a long time. And then suddenly he just passed a line 
And everybody said, maybe that character should just go away for a long, long time. You know? So I do think that current creators have to be responsible and careful. But it is really difficult to, especially with the way you can retcon things and the like in comics, it is difficult to truly screw up a character by trying something interesting. So I think erring on the side of trying to make good, interesting stories and take chances is the way to go. Right. Definitely would love to get your thoughts on this. If you get a chance to look over the article or the thread from Don Slot, definitely send us a message and give us your thoughts. We could talk about that on a future episode. Let's jump in and talk about Marvel Unlimited this week. I wanted to highlight Ultimate Invasion number one, which seems to be the big title, mm -hmm. the new big number one that's being released this week. That was published originally on June 21st, 2023. Jonathan Hickman, Brian Hitch team up. The Illuminati must form once again to stop the maker from his plans to destroy or perhaps rebuild the universe with Miles Morales at the center of it. Uh, it talked... Uh, the cover's really interesting, and it talked about there's some some extra stuff in here. There's some data pages from Jonathan Hickman, plus behind-the-scenes material on the world-building that was done in preparation for this. Uh, I think this looks really interesting and might be something I got to check out. Yeah, this is definitely, you know, Hickman, there are some people who he drives a little bit crazy. But he's really inventive, and for doing something like this, I think it's a great option to have him take over this. Hitch, of course, is the guy who sort of defined the look of the Ultimates universe back in the very first Ultimate series. So, so bringing him back lends immediate sort of weight to this in terms of that universe. So, yeah, there's there's no uh, there's no problem with at least saying that this is something you definitely want to check out because the creators are there and it's interesting and the ultimate invasions or the ultimate universe has languished for quite a while so i think it's time check it out and see what they can do see if they can fix it the last few years of the ultimate universe were not kind to it let's put it that way so okay a reboot is in order yeah. Other otherwise, if that doesn't tickle your fancy, there's 17 more there's 17 books in total that are gonna get released this week uh on Marvel Unlimited. Lots of different characters. Two Star Wars titles are going to get released as well. If you're into some Star Wars comics, there's going to be a couple options there for you as well. Dan, do you have mm -hmm. a recommendation for us? So this week I am recommending kind of an odd comic and this is i'm just going to admit it's not for everybody but it's called hey kids comics and the current volume is called schlock of the new it's now the third volume done by howard chaikin who's a creator i've been following pretty much my entire life at this point and what he's doing is telling a semi-fictionalized account of the history of the comics industry starting way at the beginning and then moving on up sort of through the present day. And so they are interesting because Chaikin is somebody who knows where all the bodies are buried. There's thinly sort of disguised versions of Stan Lee and Bob Kane and all of these guys that he gets a chance to take swipes at. 
He also is definitely an old white guy who occasionally is pretty cranky about some of the things that have happened in the last 20 years or so, which is to be expected, I guess. So I've really enjoyed them. I will also say that as invested as I am in comics and comic history, I still don't know what he's talking about a good part of the time. Because he's got so many things that he's he's going so deep into the lore that I have to go in and research what exactly was it he was trying to reference. Uh, so I wish it came with like an annotated guide or something like that. But it is pretty fun. So if you're interested in comic history and you're interested in sort of a fictionalized version by somebody who's been a fly on the wall in the industry for 50 years, Hey Kids Comics. Like I said, three different volumes. The third one is still on shelves now. One and two are in paperback. You can go out and, and get them at bookstores and the like. Yeah, so it looks like this third volume is six issues, the last of which came out just this last week. Uh, yep. The first issue is available to read online through the Image Comics website. So we will put a link in the show notes to that first issue. And then you, uh, so you can go in and look at that first issue online if you want to. Or, or you want inf more information about checking out the whole series. All right. That is going to wrap it up for the news segment. So let's jump in. Dan, tell us what was in the stack for this week. We're going in and actually taking a look at three different series from two different time periods featuring a bunch of different characters. So beginning, and we're going to do these chronologically, I guess, although it really doesn't much matter because they don't connect at all. We're going to look at Black Goliath, number one through five, from 1976. This is the entire series. There are only five issues. And it um, sort of tells the tale of one of the characters we're going to be looking at in the story here. Um, name's Bill Foster. He's also known as Goliath. Uh, and so... Those issues kind of come to a weird ending, so we're going to talk a little bit about that and how that all works out, which I thought was interesting. Now we're going to move on to Marvel Team-Up number 59 and 60 from 1977. As I think I noted last week, this is actually just a couple of my favorite comic book issues from when I was a kid. I got these actually in a used bin or something like that, and I love the art, I love the story, so I wanted to share them. There's nothing worth shaking about these, but they're, they're really solid 1970s comic book, state-of-the-art sort of stuff. And then Wasp, we're going to look at the current version, the current series of Wasp that came out this year, number one through four from 2023, featuring Janet Van Dyne and Nadia Van Dyne, who, yes, MCU fans, you've never heard of Nadia Van Dyne because she doesn't exist in the MCU. But we're going to kind of make some connections there. And I think you get a, a pretty good idea of which character might have sort of been based loosely off of Nadia. So, had a chance to read all of these. Everything was good, Dwayne. Any questions before we began? What was I thinking? Anything like uh, that? No. I, I, we'll just jump in. But do we have a creator profile for this week? Yeah, we have a creator profile, and it's actually not a creator. It's a creator's. Uh, Chris Claremont as a writer, and John Byrne as an artist. 
were one of the most dynamic pairings of the 1970s. Both of them were sort of young guns coming up in Marvel, and one of the early series that they worked on together was the rejuvenation of the X-Men that had begun by Dave Cockrum, some of these folks. They took the X-Men from being a series that had largely been canceled, you know, 10 years ago, to the juggernaut that took over comics in the 80s. And Claremont especially, who wrote X-Men basically for something like 20 straight years, and was really the architect behind that entire part of the Marvel Universe. But they also worked together on some other books, and in fact, the Marvel team-up 59 and 60 that we read today is Chris Claremont's story and John Bernhardt. The interesting thing about these two is they are dynamite making comics together. But they evidently were just as explosive when you got them in the same room together or when they tried to actually plot out something together. Because Byrne wanted to be a storyteller himself. And in fact, after they finished doing their thing, he wrote long story arcs of Fantastic Four and he created and wrote a book called Alpha Flight, and he's done all sorts of other stuff. And they had very different ideas in many cases of how some characters would be written, how the story arc should go in X-Men and other things. But they did work together on Iron Fist, they did work on Marvel Team-Up, they did work a few other places, and then the X-Men. This is probably other than or with Marv Wolfman and George Perez, these are my two favorite creator combinations of the 70s and, and 80s. Kind of, kind of like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams defined the late 60s and early 70s for me. These guys defined the late 70s and the early 80s for me. And so if you ever see a comic book and it's written by Claremont and drawn by Byrne, it's essentially you've got the Dan Housekeeping seal of approval on that book. It's going to be good, period. <laughs> there we right? go. So, uh, but it is interesting because they evidently did not get along at all. Uh, Claremont is an interesting dude. He's got a bit of an ego. Byrne is notorious as a guy who basically just flames people on the internet and is, is one of the most cantankerous people in comics. But they did great stuff together until they couldn't stand each other and then... They didn't work together anymore. And I don't believe they have worked together since, what, was it 140, 140-something 140 of X-Men was their last one, and then they were just done. All right. We have a set of books to get through, though. First, let's talk about Black Goliath from 1976 all five issues of this series. It's actually rather surprised that it only went five issues, but um, there's, I think there's some reasons why. I, I I don't know that that was my favorite set of books that that I've read. Mm -hmm. So, let's start with just a quick overview of the plot. Sure. We're gonna. We're, this is gonna center on a character who alternately in the books is called either Goliath or Black Goliath. And just as a preface to that, part of the reason why he's called Black Goliath is Bill Foster's Black, 
and Marvel is not subtle sometimes, but also because he is the third Goliath. There have been two other people in the Marvel Universe who have also taken that name, and he's the only one who's black. So, look at that, black Goliath. There we go. So, again, not a lot of subtlety going on here. Um, But he is a scientist, and he's a friend of Tony Stark and a lot of the other Avengers. He's been around for a long time, super smart guy. And he's actually moved out to Los Angeles at some point from the East Coast to take control of Tony Stark's holdings in sort of that whole Stark West or whatever it's called uh, conglomerate. He's trying to juggle his work and his superhero sideline as Goliath. The story actually starts with him out of costume, just walking along. He's accosted by a bunch of street toughs, uh, takes care of them pretty easily. Then he ends up getting beaten up relatively badly by a villain called the Atom Smasher. He's sort of a big explosion happens. Looks like he lands in a ditch. He's saved by a flight attendant who somehow gets him back to her house and makes him soup. Um, Goliath wins his rematch then against the Atom Smasher. But the bad guy does get away and he soon attacks the Stark facilities again. Foster's team then ends up in the middle of the attack. There's a trio of sort of other scientists. Whiz kids. He called them the, the whiz kids. kids. Yep. Yeah. Who try to fight the bad guys and end up kind of getting hurt. Um, he then chases after the retreating crooks, only to be attacked by another uh, bad guy called Vulcan. He's also got superpowers. After the raid, though, Tony Stark then informs Foster that the box that was stolen during that raid was incredibly important. Goliath goes off to fight Stiltman, uh, who's evidently robbing a bank out in California. um, Celia, or Seal, who is the woman that the flight attendant that saved him, uh, was there and ends up getting kidnapped by Stiltman. Uh, He then zaps the girlfriend and Goliath and one other guy with something called his Z-Ray gun, which transports yeah. everyone off to a desert planet called Kurgar. At that point, they're found by an alien called Darath, who's an explorer, also ended up shipwrecked on that planet. Together, they wander off and find this big pyramid filled with ancient Kyrgyzian tech. Bill and Celia then, right in the middle of all this exploring and whatever, just sort of sneak off to make up, uh, make out with each other for a while, which mm-hmm. means they're distracted. And there's a guardian for the pyramid called Mortog who comes in and is about to, like, kill them. The alien Darath arrives just as this is happening, and he sacrifices himself to save them. Goliath then dispatches with Mortog, finds out he's a robot, and this is where the series ends. Uh, We never really find out what's in the box we never find out how they get home off this planet. We never find out what happens to any of the whiz kids or anything else. It all just goes to dust. It just ends. Yeah, it yes. is. It is. It is really weird. <laughs> I have to tell you. And yeah, it was like a villain of the week sort of book where there was a different villain. He's like still really new to the being Goliath. And there's references to him not being the first Goliath and 
whether or not this is something he could do, but he does sort of seem like he likes doing it and like he he's enjoying himself and but he's realizing that he's not very good at it and that's why he gets beat up by the atom smasher he he basically gets beat up every every issue and really the street toughs at the in the first issue are really the only one he's able to dispatch very easily and Mm -hmm. Yeah, then just all of a sudden at the end of book four, we get this stilt man with the with the ray and they end up on this on this other planet. And so the final book is them on this other planet trying to figure out how to get back. And there's this random alien that turns out to be a robot that dies, saving them because they were off canoodling in a, in the pyramid and the guardian didn't like it. And then it just ends. I don't even know what to say about it. It's just crazy. So first off, one of the reasons I like the idea of reading this series of books, it gives you that idea of what the tragic life of a comic collector was like in the 70s and 80s, where if a book was not selling well, you didn't have the internet to tell you what was going on, right? You didn't know when it was being canceled or whatever, it would just stop. And then the next (laughs) month when you went to the newsstand, there was not a comic there. And you never in many cases found out. This was also when, you know, we're talking here about 1976. This is right around the time of when DC had what was called their implosion. And DC had decided to extend their publishing line out to compete more with Marvel. They published something like six or seven new books with completely new storylines, new characters, everything. They went for about five issues and they canceled all of them. Whoa. And some of them, the characters went on to do other things like Firestorm came out of that and he's become a big, a big character in the universe and like, but part of it came down to economic things. Um, Part of it came down to a paper shortage that was going on in America in the mid seventies that made it more difficult for comic companies to get paper and the paper became more expensive. But you did have around this time an awful lot of comic books just dropping dead. And some of them it's really weird and you don't know how it happened. This one, to be quite frank, seems to have gone off the rails a little bit. And it might have just been an editorial decision where it's like, why is this guy on an alien planet right now? What is going on? How, you know, it it did not make a lot of sense in the last couple issues. Yeah, it like, so I remember looking at the, the cover of the first issue. It's like, you demanded it. Here's Black Goliath. It's, he's going to be, you know, really awesome. And I start diving into the book and he's like, I'm new at this. I don't really know how I'm going to go about doing this. And like, Oh man, these street toughs, no problem. But this Adam Smasher guy, he's, you know, he's serious business and he kicked my butt and I end up in a ditch that's a, that starts to be flooding and he has to have some random like stewardess woman save him. And then they're like back at her, her hotel or her apartment. And, and then like the next thing he's like thanking her for a nice night. And it's just like, whoa okay where where are we going here why is this why is this i love i love the the just tiny little box they're like 
making making eyes at each other, and then there's one box that says later, and then he's yep. like, "Oh well, I should be going now," and yep. so very very subtle again, Mister Mister Isabella. So, as a note, by the way, this was written by Tony Isabella, the first the first issue, drawn by George Tesca, inked by Vince Coletta, uh, Michelle Wolfman on colors. Gaspar Sladen and Irv Watanabe on letters and edited by Marv Wolfman. And the same guys, Isabella and Tuska, who did this issue, were the ones who'd actually first turned Bill Foster into Goliath in an issue of Luke Cage Power Man about a year previously. So the key thing to note, Bill Foster's been around for a long time, since like 1966, over a decade. But he started out as an assistant working with Hank Pym and his Pym particles and helping to solve a problem where I think he was stuck at like 10 feet tall or something like that, um, Pym was. And somehow Foster came in and helped him uh, to get the science worked up. Then a decade later, he actually becomes a superhero in his own right by taking over his, or, you know, gaining Goliath powers. So... He's actually one of those characters who he's got a longer history than it seems like you'd think he would, considering how new he seems here. Um, but yeah, it's it's really very strange how they went through all of this. What I do like is that for the most part, as as inappropriate as the title seems, the book doesn't really play on a lot of like the Luke Cage uh, books, a lot of times they had very sort of over-the-top, almost racist sorts of language and situations and everything. For the most part, this really was he's just, you know, a really smart guy who's running a company and happens to be a black dude. I actually kind of liked that. I had expected it to be more, like, horrifying than it was. There really weren't a lot of times where I, where I was like, you know, looking at it as a, as an artifact that that should just be buried and, and never brought back again, which is what I expected actually to find. Sure, I, I guess more of the thing to me was I was surprised at how like inexperienced the character was and and like how he was sort of wrestling with the fact of how do you juggle being mm -hmm. kind of the head of tony stark's western you know laboratory presence and also doing the superhero thing on the side and it's like you know when did his when does he decide to be the you know the scientist and when does he decide to be the superhero yep, yep. and in, in tony's case you generally screw up both things and then turn to alcohol so maybe maybe that's what Bill sure. Foster's gonna eventually eventually decide, but hopefully not. So he seems to you know, for the most part, be trying to focus more on the business, but get sucked into the superheroine. Yeah, I I did just find it odd. Chris Claremont does take over as writer of this on like book four or something like that too. So it's obvious there's just all sorts of problems going on with this comic. You're, you're losing the writer, the plot's kind of going all over the place, and then it just ends. But, you know, back in back in the 70s, 
this would have been one of the very few comic books that was even attempted with a black superhero star. Now, you did have a couple of different Black Panther books that were published back then, um, but really it would have been a pretty limited quantity of, of options for black folks who wanted to have their own superhero. So, too bad he only got five issues, but it also is too bad that those five issues were not more like sensible they weren't they weren't they weren't insulting you know the way i thought they would be they were just insulting because they were kind of just so bad they you know? they they were not a very good story i i it to be perfectly frank and and yeah i i will say i liked the first couple issues i think the first couple issues that isabella had a good start with some of his you know, whiz kids. He he was kind of trying to set up this group. He had the the girlfriend in place. He had Foster in place with kind of you know his various uh, things that were going to cause him trouble and that he wanted to do. But it just it just went off the. Anytime you decide stilt man is the solution, you have you have badly sure. you have badly lost it. And it looked like we were also going to get the kingpin, but we never saw who that was because it ended too. Because there was one, one um, panel where there was sort of a big guy in a white, what looked like a white suit, who was the the Mister Big behind some of the shenanigans, but that was never actually revealed. Let's talk about Marvel Team Up Fifty Nine and Sixty and Spider Man uh, to Wasp and and Yellow Jacket Hank Pym teaming up with spider-man i i was not expecting that i guess i should have since marvel team up but uh but yeah and then we had a death maybe but no body so you know what that means dan tell us about marvel team up 59 and 60 absolutely so these books as previously mentioned written by chris claremont penciled by john byrne inked by dave hunt um, also colored by Hunt, lettered by Saladano and Bruce Patterson, and edited by Archie Goodwin. So they're from 1977, and this is a two-part story. Normally, the Marvel team-up every month, Spider-Man would team up with a new hero or a different hero from the Marvel Universe. Most of the time, it was a one-and-done story, which was nice, because you got a Marvel team-up, you could just read it, Good. This is actually a two-part story. So 59 is technically a team-up between him and Yellowjacket, and 60 is technically a team-up between him and the Wasp. But all three of them are in both books. So, with that, this all begins with the Pims settling in for a romantic evening at home. Unfortunately, about one page in, a firebomb sort of explodes out over the river, and they see that Spider-Man has been attacked, at which point Yellow Jacket flies off and retrieves him and brings him back to the penthouse, after which Hank and Janet take care of Spider-Man, give him hot cocoa, and then ask him questions about whether he's okay, put a little blanket on him. It's all very nice, right? Yep. Uh, the kind of friends you want to have when you've been attacked by a villain. Yep. The guy who attacked Spider-Man, though, then tracks everyone back to that apartment, and he attacks again. He calls himself Equinox, and the combined efforts of all three heroes just barely managed to drive him away. 
as a scientist-looking woman watches from the street with great concern. We soon find out that she is in fact Equinox's mother and somehow is responsible for him being the half-fire, half-ice monster that he is. Yellowjacket then follows Equinox and takes him on, tries to get him away from populated areas, but at a certain point in their fight, Yellowjacket is standing near a big tanker truck, Equinox blows it up with one of his blasts and ends up killing Yellowjacket as well as seriously, seriously irritating the Wasp, which is where the first book ends. Unfortunately, we find out in 60 that the Wasp is unable to really affect Equinox with their stings because they're not powerful enough, and the heroes regroup at the Baxter building, where Dr. Sorensen gives her family's tragic backstory, including how her son Terry, who was Equinox, had been transformed trying to save his father from a burning building. While they're there trying to work on things, the Fantastic Four is not home, but the Wasp is... Everybody loves the Wasp, so she's got, like, access into the building, which is how they got in there. Her um, Avengers key card works... The yep. Avengers key card works to get her into the Baxter yep. building. Absolutely. Um, Equinox finds them there, and the battle sort of recommences. Doc Sorensen has actually created this power inhibitor harness though, and the Baxter building tech has let her finish it while the battle is going on. What they have to do, though, is they have to actually put it over his shoulders, so someone has to get close enough to, to put, get themselves in danger. As they're getting ready and trying to figure out who's going to do that, Yellowjacket reappears. Wasp finds that her stingers and other powers have actually been amped up, so she's got greater strength when she's small, her stings hit harder when she's small, etc. And... Because she's hamped up the way she is, she's actually able to hurt Equinox when she does so. Yellowjacket slams the harness over him and depowers him. Hank and Jan head off with Equinox to the police station, and Spidey hangs around and grabs a broom and starts cleaning up FF headquarters because he knows he's somehow going to be blamed for the mess. Yep, that is... There you go. That it, that that was the the very quick story. This was actually a surprisingly quick story, but I I really I see why you like it. It is there is a lot of action and there's just enough story depth to it that I I I found myself just quickly getting right through this story. It was it was it was a really great two part story. Yep, it is it is absolutely like something that moves along and this is claremont could be really wordy sometimes but this was one where he actually let the story kind of move a little more and i think that's something that worked well with him and burn because burn is sort of like i want to tell the story with my pictures and claremont's sort of sitting there going no we should just have a typed page for people to read right and and they fought it out between each other in the X-Men a lot of times, because there were some of those issues that were really wordy. But here, just a beautiful combination of the exact amount, right amount of dialogue and, and balloons and then beautiful artwork. Uh, from the very first page, actually, that Spidey swinging through the city on the first page of 59 just kind of drops you into it immediately. So, team-up books, by the way. Have you ever read a team-up book before? Um, I don't know if I have, to be perfectly honest. Because I don't think we have, because we've, we've had books where heroes have teamed up. Oh, it's Moon Knight 
you know, with the Punishers in it or something like right, that. Right, right. But there were a few comic books from Marvel and DC that were specifically team-up titles. And with Marvel, the two primary ones were Marvel Team-Up, which was where Spider-Man every week or every month would team up with somebody, and Marvel 2-in-1, which every month the Thing would team up with somebody. And so not the whole Fantastic Four, but just the Thing. And it, the reason I think that those two characters is they were both kind of just wise asses. And so it was always this... You know, lots of jokey content and the like and bantering with the other hero who's guest starring with them and everything like that. They were both a lot of fun. Usually the stories were not particularly serious. I would say that the the one we read today is probably about as dramatic as those get. Usually they're they're just more uh, more action. DC did the same thing. They had one called DC um, DC Comics Presents which had Superman teaming up with uh, somebody different every month. And then they had Brave and Bold, one of my favorite DC titles for most of the 80s, which every month Batman teamed up with somebody else. And that was drawn by a guy named Jim Aparo for almost 100 issues, who's one of my all-time favorite Batman artists. Uh, there's also been things like World's Finest, which every month was the same team up. It was Superman and Batman together every month. But okay. these other titles... It varied it up. So the nice thing is if you subscribe to Marvel Team Up, you knew you were going to get some Spider-Man every month, but then you'd get to see other characters from the Marvel Universe as well. This not only was good for readers because it was always something kind of a little different and fresh, but it was good for the company because it let them get new characters or characters they maybe wanted to get a new spin on out into the public's eye so that people would see them and maybe um, get a chance to... Uh, get a chance to decide they want to pick up their other title or pick up the new comic that they're going to be featured in or whatever. So this one, I think, actually is one that is classic in that one of the things they used this for was especially for characters that didn't have a regular gig outside of it. And Wasp, I don't know at this point if she was actually in the Avengers right at this point. It gives them a chance to make changes to that character they want to to make them more marketable. So Wasp comes into this with her powers being very limited. And she always has been. Like, in, in all of the Avengers things, she's always stinging people. And they're like, ow, that hurts. You know, like it's <laughs> like someone's yeah. thrown a pebble, right? Uh -huh. And Claremont, to his credit, decided to use this story as a way to amp her up to a more substantial character and so essentially what we find during the story is that as a birthday present or anniversary present or something pym has figured out how to change the formulation he's he's constantly genetically experimenting on his wife which is sketchy obviously because he didn't tell her about this no he, he did not he'd given her he'd given her some new therapy that only needed to have an adrenaline cocktail to to sort of kick it off, which he was going to give her. But when she thought he died, that kicked her adrenaline up to where these new, this sort of activated. And now the smaller she shrinks, the more that sort of compresses the energy of her, her blasts and her strength. So as she gets smaller, her blasts get more powerful. Yep. And so... 
by the end, once she shrinks down, she's able to pack a pretty decent punch that's actually able to stagger a supervillain rather than what she'd previously been doing, which was really like, you know, cosmetic damage at, at most times. So she, I, I she, like that. She, I like that yeah, change. She, she was kind of just like the fly, just kind of buzzing around the villain's head, basically, for the most part, which was... At best, maybe a, a slight distraction, which really isn't going to help you too much in, in an actual fight. Yep, absolutely. And then one other thing just to note, um, kind of coming on the heels of talking a little bit about the status of black characters and like in the 70s. One of the things that Claremont really brought to comics, especially to Marvel, was a far greater diversity in the characters on the page. Uh, more specifically, even than with, with racial sort of um, diversity, he was very concerned with the idea that there just weren't enough women that mattered in comics. And when he was making a character, he would, he would have this famous saying around the office, is there a reason this character couldn't be a woman? So normally, if you're reading comic books, all of the pilots, all of the cops, all of the everybody are going to be men. But if you look at 59 and 60, the, you know, he brings in the, the New York City police detective who's a woman. The, you know, brings in the mom rather than the dad as the one who's doing this and as the scientist that kind of has to, to take care of this. And then, of course, the main character is black as well. So it is interesting because Claremont was one of the few people really doing that at that point. So there's a lot more female characters and a lot more diversity in his stories in the late 70s, early 80s than in almost anybody else's work. So overall, though, seemed like a, a an interesting, fast-paced little story. And there's not a whole lot to talk about except for one thing, and that is that at this time, would you say that Jan and and Hank are blissfully happy? Not, it, you, there's some cracks there because she is, she seems to be pining for him and he seems to be distracted and like, He's he's spending lots of hours in the lab and not really paying attention to her and that sort of thing. So, no, it does not seem like things are going very well there. It is it is unfortunately the classic Hank Pym, which is he's still a dick, right? Yeah. He does not pay much attention to her at all. And he is almost always, as soon as there's anything to do other than, you know, be there with her, he's off jumping off into the lake to go fetch Spider-Man or whatever immediately. Which I guess in this case, that's hard to really, you know, fault him for. Because sure. we do need Spider-Man not to die. But but yeah, I think the first few pages there do a pretty good job of showing a marriage that is not really in a great shape. Where you've got one person who's more invested in it than the other one. And wow. it's uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, it it shows like at the end of the first book too. Like when she thinks Hank dies, she is devastated. Mm -hmm. And like at the start of sixty, she's like, 
gonna go rush it. first she like confronts the mom and then she's mm. like i'm just i i don't care if i can't do anything to this equinox character i'm gonna go in and i'm gonna find a way to avenge my 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 long lost husband now and and like spider-man's basically begging her not to go in because it's not a good idea she's not powerful enough to to do anything and and yeah so she's very invested in the relationship and he is definitely not invested in the relationship and it's interesting because it would still be five years or so before we had kind of the real breakup and everything else but it's obvious that some of the writers around marvel already could tell that there was some there were some things going on that were sketchy there so that though takes us to the modern wasp a lot has happened right a lot a lot has happened between 1977 and 2023 um you know we've got we've got kind of um you know spousal abuse we've got a divorce we've got all sorts of jobs that she's taken on in terms of being the chairperson of the avengers multiple times and having her own companies and getting ridiculously wealthy and everything else so she said she's had a significant arc over the last what well, 70 80s and 90s. jeez like 35 40, years or so 35 40 years yeah. um but this takes us up to the current wasp that's being published right now and I think it's interesting because it also shows how different comics are in terms of sort of the way they're being produced and who they're intended for and things like that. Uh, because this is a very different series than some of the ones that we've read previously. So, you ready for Wasp 2023, yeah. number one through four? Well, let's... Excellent. Give us a recap is, of what happens. All right. So this is written by Al Ewing, who written a lot of really good stuff. He's a very popular writer with Marvel over the last decade or so. It's penciled and inked by Kate Nemzik, I believe is the pronunciation. Colored by K.J. Diaz. Lettered by Corey Petit. And edited by Caitlin Lindvet and Alana Smith. So first thing first there. The fact that you notice a number of women actually in the credit box yes. is obviously unusual in terms of a lot of the stuff we've read before. A lot of the modern Marvel books that are featuring female characters do have a much stronger female presence in terms of the creators. The fact that it's actually still written by a guy is something that is actually a little unusual, like the She-Hulk books. A lot of these others are actually written by women as well now, too. But these four issues also move pretty quickly. And I'm going to go through an origin or the sort of summary of them and then talk about them a little bit. So starts out kind of in classic fashion here because the series actually starts out with a recap of the Wasp's origin, showing the death of her father at the hands of Cosmos and then it moves to the present where Janet Van Dyne is opening a new superhero bar and spending time with her stepdaughter Nadia, um, who is Nadia Van Dyne, who is actually running GIRL, G period I period R period L period, which stands for Genius in Action Research Labs. While they're there, Whirlwind attacks, and after quite a lot of visiting, 
and a little bit of fighting, he ends up being defeated, and they find out that he has a message called Find Me burned into his forehead with formic acid. That immediately sets off flags for Janet, because that is actually what Cosmos, the creature who killed her father, was made out of. Our heroes then hear that Whirlwind may have been hired by a group called Whisper, and they are then attacked by an army of robot wasps led by Phantasma as they investigate. Our heroes defeat these robots, and they enter the abandoned hospital that the uh, that Phantasma and her robots had been guarding, where they actually find Cosmos. Cosmos is controlling Janos Trojava, who's Nadia's grandfather, and he sends the wasps into their dreams, where Nadia returns to the Red Room, where she trained as a girl, and Janet relives the investigation into her father's death. The girls need help, and luckily Jarvis is on the way. He also gets sucked into a dream world, though, and things start to crash together. Nadia is sent to assimilate Janet, or, ah, not, Nadia is sent to assassinate Janet, but a hug and the arrival of Jarvis to lay down some exposition lets them escape their mental traps. They then find some pim particles, Janet uses them to avenge her father by destroying Cosmos, and Nadia reunites with her grandpa. Whirlwind, unfortunately, is also found to be very dead on the last page of issue number four, but that would be a story for another time. So, there you go. A very whirlwind, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, four mm-hmm. issues. Lot, lot, lot that happens. There's a, a very good amount of action and... Uh, yeah, th- this was this was this was a very interesting se- set of books. I I don't know what I was expecting when it came to be like modern day current Janet Van Dyne, but uh, but yeah, this was this was pretty interesting. She she seems very different than the Janet Van Dyne we just left in the in the mid seventies. She she seems like a completely different person. She really is. I mean, this character has devolved a lot because at this point, she runs her own business. She's got a lot of wealth. She's got a lot of experience sort of leading teams and the like. And it's it's not in any way something where she is defined by her relationship to Hank Pym anymore. And I think that through most of the 60s and 70s, Janet Van Dyne rarely was given any breathing space as a character outside of somehow being a companion to Yellow Jacket or Ant-Man, right? Yeah. And, you know, I I think you see that with a lot of female characters. You know, like back in the day, you had Hawkgirl, who, number one, was not a girl. She was a woman. And, And number two almost never got to do anything outside of being there next to Hawkman. And the Wasp really for a long time was in a similar situation. She very rarely saw her on her own. Eventually she did end up staying in the Avengers even when uh, even when Yellow Jacket or Ant-Man uh, was not there either because he lost his powers or something like that. But by now it's just completely different where she's just a completely standalone character who has kind of her own, her own arcs and her own um, adventures and villains and everything else. So, this has been 
an interesting book for me because I like how they took the original origin story of Ant-Man and the Wasp, which is, to be quite frank, kind of ridiculous. It's a weird jello monster who, if you remember, they got a gun, and then instead of carrying the gun over there, they have the ants carry them and the gun all the way over to where they could do it, and then they got... You remember the two of them had to like pull back the the trigger at at tiny size when either of them could have just gotten regular size and shot the, but anyway, anyway, (laughs) they took that origin story and then instead of refuting it, they did what Marvel really does best. They took that and they updated it and they expanded it and they sort of gave some new story space to it, right? So we still see Cosmos, he's back. Um, that brings additional characters in and gives us some other stuff. But they didn't do anything that really denied the original story. It just expanded Janet's role in the original story, showing what she was doing that didn't involve being at the side of Hank Pym. So one other thing I want to check with you, the art style. I think is also different maybe from what you're used to in a lot of ways. It's very sort of manga slash anime uh, influenced and it's bright. It's clean. It definitely does not have any sort of like gritty, you know, almost like if you, if you think of the Moon Knight comics that we've been reading, very different in terms of that, you know, constant darkness. These are for the most part, even when they're dark, they're still relatively bright. They're very bright. Yeah, I I liked the art style across these four books. I, I thought they, like, the characters looked very clean and polished and, like, very, like, they, they, they felt like they just practically jumped out of the panels to me, I think is the best way of putting it. They... No, no matter what they were doing, whether they were fighting, whether whether they were flying, whatever was going on, it, it just felt like they sort of just sort of popped almost right off the page. But the the like the color palette, it was amazing how bright it was throughout these books. And like the 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 covers are very simple in that they basically are just, you know, a almost full body shot of of one of the wasps whether whether it's janet or nadia and and they that that's basically it and then their color there's a color behind them Mm -hmm. and that's that's basically that's basically it but they're but they're very effective they they're very there's no way you get lost like reading this there's not there's not too much detail there's not not enough detail there was always you could always see what was going on and it was very easy to follow. Yeah, they almost—I mean, when you when you talk about it that way, they almost had like an animation cell type look to the art, where it yeah. didn't stand out in the foreground. It was very well defined lines, that sort of stuff. But so I liked it. I do think that these books very much had a feel of being designed with, you know, like a female audience at least partially in mind. Yeah. You know, I can see where these have everything from the art style to the story and everything else 
I think this would be something that would be far more likely to be a, a book where you've got a story about a, about a woman character, female character, that is made for women readers. Yeah. So, so that's, though, you know, when we're kind of getting ready for next week, this gives us three different characters, actually four, because we're going to see a little bit of each of these characters when we're in the, uh, when we're watching the movie. So, of course, you're going to have Hank Pym, right? He's still there as older Hank Pym. Janet Van Dyne, we may or may not see next week. It's still, you know, you don't know yet if you haven't watched the movie, I guess. But there's there's a rumor that we may see some Janet Van Dyne. You're going to see Cassie, who in many ways was the original analog of this. And because of the fact she becomes almost like an adopted daughter of Hank Pym as the movies go along. I think that, you know, because she starts to really start hanging out and has kind of that scientific bent sort of uh, by the third movie. I think you find there's a lot of Nadia in Cassie. Even though Cassie is in the comics, her own character, they kind of smoosh them together in the movies, right? Yeah. To get aspects of both. And then you're going to get, um, obviously, Goliath. We don't get to see him in costume or anything like that. But we do have, uh, oh, for heaven's sakes. But we do have Bill Foster actually appearing. He's going to be played by Lawrence Fishburne uh, in kind of a, a cool little cameo type performance here. Um, and, and we don't want to talk too much about exactly what happens after the cameo there until people have watched. So there's a couple other characters we're not talking about, like Ghost. Uh, but I think this was a a nice kind of look at what where some of these characters have been over the last 40 years or so going into this movie. The other thing I wanted to note, by the way, is I thought Jarvis was an effective character in this. He was... He was kind of somebody who's turned into sort of a, a friend of, of Janet's over the years because he runs the mansion and she was chairman for so often. They've spent so much time together and the like. And they are both sort of rich upper crust folks when it comes down to it. She's very much sort of a, um, you know, somebody who's who's comfortable in high society and he's very much a stiff upper lip, classic butler, gentleman's gentleman, as he calls himself. And so they've always yeah. gotten along well. They understand the world in similar ways. And they've been friends for a long time. So I think it's interesting that he's kind of come into her her orbit more, almost as her her supporting character. Because he started out, of course, as Tony Stark's supporting character. And now... As uh, probably anyone can only stand so much time working for Stark, and he's had to find a, a new a new source of employ, and has moved on to to Janet. So, the the one thing I will say about this current run, if as we're wrapping up the discussion about the twenty twenty three Wasp books, is the Janet Van Dyne in that comic to me feels a lot like hope van dyne from the movie 
from the movie. One hundred percent. And and like I I I I like that because I think Hope Van Dyne is actually quite an interesting and, and cool character. And and I know I remember like thinking she was interesting in the first movie, but she really kind of steps out into the limelight, I think, in the second film. And and you very much see that same type of thing in this set of books. She she's at Janet Van Dyne seems very confident, very knows matter of fact about who she is and what she's doing and, and everything. And I feel like that's Hope Van Dyne's character from, from the MCU. Yeah. They've taken the Ant-Man universe and just completely thrown it into like a bingo ball, you know, uh, yeah, mix, mixer mix, or whatever. mix everything up. Cause, yeah. Cause it is tough to really tell which parts of it now are like, you know, Cassie and which parts are Nadia, which parts are are any of them because you've got yeah. those two those two families that essentially now are just mixed together into one um it's it's a little strange but um all right well there we go Dwayne. we've talked about these my final question for you for today is which of these was your favorite story for the week and uh we started out with a few issues on you know, bill foster and black goliath Dropped into those two Marvel team ups, and then the Wasp. Which, which ones do you like? So I think I, I think I enjoyed the Marvel team up book books fifty nine and sixty the most. Uh, though I I think the current Wasp story is probably I think more of more in line with maybe what story we're going to get with the movie. Or like at least there's a char- char- better mm-hmm. character comparison, I think. I think between the two, uh, the thing the thing with the Marvel team up book is, I it it just it was a fun and quick comic book story, and it just was a it 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 hit kind of checked all the boxes for what I was looking for when I when it, when I open up a comic book. I saw some action. I saw some story. Saw some character development and growth uh silly me thinking yellow jacket actually had died in there we didn't see a body so of course there's an explanation as to how he was able to come back and and survive a tanker blowing up you did not actually think he was dead i actually did think he was dead for a little bit yeah i thought it was going to be one of those scenarios where they had to be creative at some point to bring him back but but they did not and then like the whole idea of them kind of pseudo breaking into the Fantastic Four headquarters. Uh, and I say breaking in because they get in with the key card, but then the power goes out and like the backup system doesn't realize that the the main system let them in. And so it thinks mm-hmm. they're an intruder and starts attacking, you know, and they get separated and and all this sort of thing. And so it it. It was a quick story, but very effective, and I and I just I really I really enjoyed it. Excellent, very cool. No, I would agree. I think it was, I think it was the class of the week as well. So, great great story that's held up well over the years. So correspondence. I think we we may have had some correspondence, Dwayne. What uh, what did we hear back on our question from last week? 
Now we got a couple of responses to your your question during the recommendation segment, asking people how they go about getting getting their their comics. Uh, we had Amanda reach out saying that uh, she doesn't have a local comic store but uses a subscription service from Southside Comics out of Pittsburgh. They apparently do a really good job of communicating if there's problems and you get an option about shipping once or twice a month. Uh, doesn't get any discounts though, as, as far as that goes. Um, we also had Forrest Bates who reached out, uh, currently uses a mail order service as well, DCB service. They're great and offer good discounts on books and multiple shipping options because his nearest local comic book store is about half an hour away in the opposite direction of where, where he travels on a daily basis to work. So, and then there's mm-hmm. apparently a CBSN group on Facebook that uh, he also uses that do uh, live sales on Facebook. Yep. So, but I, there you go. I haven't, I, I, I did not know that was a thing. People do live sales on Facebook, huh? That's, there are folks finding ways to hawk their comic books everywhere, I think. So that's that's interesting, though. Very cool. So the more people, actually, it seems like, yeah, who've decided to start using, and maybe this is something that during the pandemic, too, I suspect there's probably a number of people who maybe made this change. But I think that it's it it is increasingly also, as it becomes harder and harder for the stores to actually get things with the breakup of Diamond and the like, uh, this is one of those monkey's paw things where most of us have been complaining about Diamond as a distributor for most of the last 20 years or something like that because they were essentially a monopoly. And now we get competition and we realize what a disaster it is and maybe we're all feeling a little bit sorry about all the bad things we said about Diamond as a monopoly over the last however long. So, but... It, it is interesting to me, though. Yeah, it looks like that there are there are a number of options out there for, for doing it through mail order, and that does seem to be kind of the, the preferred option for Comics Over Time listeners. Amanda, during her email, actually did ask us a question about Proxima Midnight from Avengers Infinity War, which we talked about on last week's show. She commented that the character looked a little video game character like during that and was asking about how much CGI went into that character. And I did some research and I'm going to tell you, I couldn't get a definitive answer. However, it does seem like that that character was mostly CGI. The character is seven foot tall with horns and stuff. And so they probably felt like they needed to do CGI for the character rather than doing it in a more practical means, like maybe we would have seen earlier in the MCU. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I feel like as we've gotten further, further through phase one, phase two, and now deep into phase three, the reliance on CGI seems to be getting exponentially mm-hmm. larger, right? And And like the things they may have done with more practical effects are now being done almost entirely by CGI. And... Part of part of this also, I think, is the actress that was involved, Carrie Coon, who is who who is 
Prox credited as Proxima Midnight in the movie was actually pregnant during principal photography. So she only did uh, the, the, the voice as well as some facial motion capture work. And it was a stunt woman, Monique Granderton, who actually provided all the rest of the motion capture work uh, for the, for the character. So um, that I was able to find. So, so I do believe that like Thanos, that that character was probably almost entirely CGI uh, that we saw on the screen, which might explain why she didn't look quite as, you know, real as maybe, go. maybe she could have. That makes sense. Interesting. Huh? Yeah. I, I think that you're, you're correct that previously, even early in, you know, Iron Man days, they probably were like, we're going to do everything practically and physically unless we can't, and then we'll do it with CGI. And now it almost seems like they've swung entirely the other way where we're going to do yeah. everything with CGI unless for some reason we just can't, in which case then we'll actually build a set or make it uh, make it physical and practical. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I remember like e even when we were talking about uh, Captain America, the first two Captain America movies, uh, First Avenger and Winter Soldier, where where we were talking about a lot of the the practical things that they were doing and choreography and different things like this and how they you know they they weren't relying on on, on CGI, but now it feels like that's that's definitely not the, the direction they're in now, and definitely in Phase Four, it feels like that has been. They're working the the VFX people pretty hard. Well, they're they even got to the point where they're doing the masks as CGI and stuff like that, which yeah, you definitely would have had those practical before. So there we go. Pretty cool, interesting stuff. All right, Dan. Before we go, where are we headed next week? What are we going to be looking at and talking about? Well, we learned a bit about the Wasp. A little more been introduced to Bill Foster. Time to rewatch Ant Man and the Wasp from 2018, which features Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly in supporting roles, and of course stars Michael Pena as Louise. Yes, we we are some big Michael Pena stands here on the show. I think we both thought he was the best part of the first movie, and he's just mm -hmm. as good, I think, in in the sequel here. So. Yep. definitely get it if you get a chance this week watch it and then join us for that discussion on next week's show excellent and with that that is going to wrap it up for us for this week we'd like to thank you all for joining us what if you're new to the podcast please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice that way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released whether you're new to the show or you've been with us from the beginning we'd love to get your thoughts on the show, on the comic books that we read this week. Definitely reach out to us. You can send us comments via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. Or you can reach out to us via social media. We are on X. Ugh, I hate saying that. At Comics Over Time. We're also now on Blue Sky, which I may or may not get to publish to. I'm trying. We're... Had some issues before the show. I had trouble publishing 
the the new episode thing on blue sky last week i'm going to try again this week hopefully you will see a message if you're on blue sky and about the new episodes and and things going on going forward there but i i can get into blue sky but i'm also thoroughly undependable in terms of social media posting so hopefully if Dwayne can't get in i will actually get it to you but there we are all right dan we're winding down on phase three ant-man was a lot of fun and i recall really enjoying ant-man and wasp the first time i watched it so i'm really curious now with this additional context about bill foster and janet van dyne i'm very curious to see the rewatch absolutely gonna be a good time i, I enjoyed this one as well all right until next week take care everybody see y'all next week folks <laughs>